This is The Channel, a podcast from the International Institute for Asian Studies. Welcome to The Channel. Today on the podcast, we're playing short conversations with two winners of the ICAST Book Prize 2023. As listeners may know, this year marked the 10th edition of the ICAST Book Prize. The prize was established in 2003 by our flagship conference, the International Convention of Asia Scholars, or ICAST, to recognize outstanding publications in the field of Asian studies. The award brings wider visibility to the latest and most impressive books, and it has become one of the most prestigious book prizes in the discipline. Since its inception, the IBP competition has expanded in many ways. It now includes various editions in multiple languages, including French, Chinese, German, Spanish and Portuguese, Japanese, and Korean. Beyond books, the English language edition also includes dissertation awards in both social sciences and humanities categories to recognize the groundbreaking work of recently minted PhDs. The competition now also includes an award for the best article on global Hong Kong studies. For all editions and prizes, the International Institute for Asian Studies depends on partner institutions who organize and or sponsor the competitions. Along with the many colleagues who serve on our reading committees, they make the IBP what it is, and we are grateful for their work. For more information on these sponsors and for the full results of the IBP 2023, visit the ICAST website or check out the special supplemental booklet included in the most recent edition of the newsletter from IIAS. On today's episode, we bring you interviews with the two winners of the English Language Edition, which is sponsored by the Asian Library, part of Leiden University Libraries. First is Victoria Lee, who won in the Humanities category, followed by John Lee, whose book won in the Social Sciences category. Victoria Lee is an assistant professor of the History of Science and Technology at Ohio University. Her winning book is The Arts of the Microbial World, Fermentation Science in 20th Century Japan, published in 2021 by the University of Chicago Press. The reading committee for this year's IBP competition called it, quote, an outstanding example of how the use of Asia-centered sources and approaches leads us towards what we might call New Asia Scholarship. End quote. I'll introduce the second interview with John Lee later in the episode, but for now, here is my conversation with Victoria Lee. Victoria Lee, congratulations once more on winning the ICAST Book Prize in the Humanities for 2023. I'm really happy you're able to join me here to tell us about your book and your ongoing research. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks. The publication is called The Arts of the Microbial World, Fermentation Science in 20th Century Japan. Could you start by introducing people to the book, what it's about and how you came to it? Yeah, um, I focus on a concept, the microbe, along with its attendant scientific institutions that were imported from Europe into Japan in the late 19th century. And I explore how they functioned in 20th century Japan. 
What the microbe has often represented in historical accounts is a great break between pre-modern and modern control, as well as the universality of scientific institutions across the globe. This breaks down when we look closely at developments in Japan. Fermentation science shows us the prominence of another tradition of microbial control, not just that of eradicating microbes as pathogens, which was mainstream in microbiology in Europe and North America, but also a productive tradition that treated microbes as living workers that could make things for everyday consumption and that might help society solve various economic or environmental problems. The existence of a productive tradition of microbiology is not unique to Japan, but the Japanese case was distinctive in the scale of state support for fermentation science in the 20th century. The book looks at several industries, including traditional brewing, such as sake and soy sauce, nutrition, biofuels, penicillin and antibiotics, and flavor science from 1900 to 1980, to show that they were shaped by continuities with the early modern period. In this way, the book argues that cultural difference and indigenous categories continued to matter in 20th century science, even in disciplines that were entirely imported, pushing back against the idea that there was a great divide between pre-modern and modern science and one single path of modernity. As a scholar, how did you come to this topic of microbes in Japanese science in the 20th century? What led you to write this book in terms of your personal interests? We think of scientific institutions as being part of the landscape of modernity. And they're often assumed to be universal with origins in Europe or North America and that were then transferred elsewhere. I've always been interested in exploring this in a non-Western context since I come from an undergraduate background in science. And when I came into the history of science, I wondered if there was a perspective that could tell us something new about what we think we already know. And that's why I was attracted to Japanese microbiology. The microbe in the non-Western context is often told as a story of medical bacteriology. In fact, there are influential scholars, um, science studies scholars, who have argued that modern laboratories everywhere are copies of institutions originating in the metropole. And essentially, that's what le what, what's left for historians to do is to explain the process of replication in different local contexts outside of the center. Japan's narrative is interesting because it can be told that way in the sense that microbiology there began with imported concepts and institutions in the late 19th century. But there is also another side to it. If you look in the applied sciences, in agriculture and industry, there are a lot of distinctive connections in the 20th century between different areas that are very prominent in Japanese science, but superficially look disparate. If you look behind those connections, you find strong institutions of fermentation science, such as the discipline of agricultural chemistry, and a highly developed way of thinking about microbes as living workers and not just pathogens. 
I wanted to uncover this little known tradition that developed differently from mainstream trends in Europe and North America in the hope that it might offer a new perspective on microbes and on the history of modern scientific institutions as a whole. In the book, and as you alluded to in your first two answers, you talk about how microbes are central to multiple scientific and social domains, including food. How did research on microbes transform Japan's food system or even perhaps the global food system in the last hundred years? In Japan, in brewing traditional products such as sake and soy sauce, brewers took methods from scientists and started to pure culture the koji rice mold for brewing. Pure culture means culturing from just a single strain of the microbe rather than using mixed strains coming in from the environment. This was not a radical break with past methods since specialist koji starter makers had already used empirical sensory methods to cultivate koji as purely as possible, but it did aid the industrialization of these sectors by making the process more consistent. Regionally, Japanese scientists worked to transform industrial alcohol production in the home islands and in Japan's colonies through more efficient fermentation methods, especially for biofuel production during wartime. To do this, the most powerful microbes came from heritage brewing cultures at Japan's colonial frontier, as well as exchange beyond it with European colonies in Southeast Asia. It shows how regional Asian knowledge contributed to Japan's modernity. These microbes were still used in producing drinking alcohol at the industrial scale after World War II. Globally, fermentation transformed the making of flavor the best known is MSG, or monosodium glutamate, which makes an umami flavor, a deliciousness flavor on the tongue. MSG was made by chemical extraction since the second decade of the 20th century. In the late 1950s, Japanese scientists in corporate laboratories worked out how to make it by fermentation, that is using a microbe, making the process much cheaper. This biotechnology was exported around the world along with fermentation methods for making other amino acids and nucleotides industrially, like IMP and GMP, which also make different umami flavors. Beyond what we eat, what are some of the other domains that have been transformed since 1900, say, through microbial sciences in Japan? A big one is pharmaceuticals. Um, antibiotics are all made by microbes, beginning with penicillin in the 1940s. In the second half of the 20th century, Japanese science has been very dynamic in discovering and making new antibiotics. There are also other drugs made by microbes, for example, ivermectin, which is an antiparasitic drug and which is used a lot in the global south. The Japanese fermentation scientist Omura Satoshi, along with his American colleague, William Campbell, won the Nobel Prize in Medicine for this in 2015. Also, statins, uh, the anti-cholesterol drugs, which are some of the best-selling drugs in, in pharmaceutical history, which are made by a mold, were discovered in Japan in the 1970s. Your book arrives at a moment when society's relationship with microbes is shifting. How has the human world's approach to microbes changed, and how does the research you've done for this book fit into that larger story? Microbes have taken a new relevance to questions of sustainability 
with the discovery of the microbiome and the fact that we coexist with and depend on microbes at every level of life. There is also the realization of how important microbes are in climate change, especially in agriculture. Of the roughly one quarter of global greenhouse gas emissions that come from agriculture-driven land use, livestock farming, and especially fermentation coming from the stomachs of livestock, constitutes the largest source. We've realized that we need to work with microbes for sustainability, perhaps use them to make dairy without cows or protein without animals, or that we need to preserve soil microbes to maintain crop and plant health. There have been calls to find new ways to approach microbes that could address these problems by valuing traditional and small-scale production practices, by promoting biodiversity, and by incorporating ecosystem thinking. With 20th century Japanese fermentation science, we get a detailed example of an approach that was already historically realized and that did all of these things. So now that the book is out, what's next in terms of your research agenda? Do you wanna expand this work on microbes into new directions or are you planning to examine a new topic altogether? I'm interested in how microbial history can serve as a reference for problems of sustainability in the 21st century. In thinking about how to use the study of past science to inform the present, I'm inspired by the program of complementary science that's articulated by the philosopher Hassop Chang, which emphasizes history as a reservoir of different possibilities, some of which were pursued and others not, and how we might examine some of the paths not taken or less taken to add to the science we have today. I'm interested in examining the features of fermentation science, such as the valuing of knowledge from traditional and small-scale producers, the premium placed on biodiversity, and the emphasis on ecosystem thinking to see how they can speak to new approaches to microbes and sustainability in the present. Victoria Lee, I want to thank you very much again for coming on to describe your new book, and I want to congratulate you once more on the well-deserved recognition it's received, most recently the ICAST Book Prize in the Humanities for 2023. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. That was Victoria Lee, winner of the English Language Edition of the 2023 ICAST Book Prize in the Humanities. This year, the Parallel Prize in the Social Sciences category was won by John Lee, Distinguished Professor of Sociology at the University of California, Berkeley. Lee's winning book is Japan, the Sustainable Society, the Artisanal Ethos, Ordinary Virtues, and Everyday Life in the Age of Limits. It was published in 2021 by the University of California Press. The book explores possible futures and everyday practices of sustainability in the face of worsening global crises. At the end of their praising statement, the IBP Reading Committee called it, quote, a seminal guidebook for sober reflection indeed, in the age of palpable limits. In the following conversation, John briefly introduces the book and how it fits into his broader research interests. Thank you.
John Lee, thank you so much for coming on to talk about your book, Japan, the Sustainable Society, The Artisanal Ethos, Ordinary Virtues, and Everyday Life in the Age of Limits, published in 2021 by University of California Press. Really pleased to be talking to you. Thank you. So congratulations again on winning the ICAST Book Prize in the Social Sciences category for 2023. Could you start by just introducing the book a little bit? Oh, sure. The book is uh, really a response to the sense after the poverty speculation bubble burst in early 1990s that far from being number one, Japan was something of a basket case. And my, my take, I mean, in kind of this empirical instance, is that Japan is far from being a basket case, that it is a vibrant society, has many virtues that uh, in the age of neoliberalism, I suppose, that people miss. Second, and I, I guess in some funny way, a deeper version of that is in our age of environmental crisis, it's very important to rethink the foundations of social sciences, such as the presumption of the virtues of economic growth, such as the idea that environment or nature is outside of human or social sciences. So I wanted to be able to combine these and other themes, and the result is the book. How did you come to the topic of sustainability? You're a sociologist, and as I understand it, your earlier work wasn't explicitly about ecology or ecological crisis. How did you get interested in this, and how did you come to the project? Well, you know, I spent some of my youth in Japan when Japan was like the pollution capital of the world, Minamata, for example. And so I was alerted quite early to the peril of environmental disaster. And I think it doesn't take much imagination to think that we are headed in the wrong direction. And so I've had a very long-standing interest in environmental and ecological issues. You mentioned that Japan was once hailed as an economic miracle in the late 20th century, and only then it was sort of deflated by recession in the 1990s as it confronted various limits to growth. Why is that historical background important for understanding the story you're telling in this book? Well, I suppose from the narrow ambit of Japan studies or Japanology, I mean, there's a sense in which Japan became, you know, after World War II, an example of bad Japan. You know, why did it become militarist, fascist, to use a slightly problematic word? And in the era of rapid economic growth, Japan is number one. I also think people emphasize just one aspect and not necessarily the great best aspect of Japanese political economy or society. And in the age of so-called lost de decades, lost two decades, three decades, when almost all economists agree that Japan was a horrible, horrible example, that in fact, uh, there were real virtues to Japanese societies that people overlooked, not just for this time period, but also in the age of rapid economic growth, and I would dare to say in the militarist era in the 1930s and 40s. So I wanted to recover some of the virtues, I thought, of ordinary Japanese society. Yeah, that leads nicely into the next question, because 
you're primarily not focusing on institutional or policy frameworks in this particular work. You're more interested in, as you said, these sort of ordinary quotidian practices of sustainability right. in Japanese society. Mm-hmm. And in fact, the subtitle of your book once more is The Artisanal Ethos, Ordinary Virtues, and Everyday Life in the Age of Limits. How would you characterize this idea of artisanal ethos? And what are those sort of ordinary virtues that you're focusing on? Yeah, so to slightly um, answer in a slightly different way, when we confront problems, be it economic or environmental, I think there's a sense in which we look for heroic or overarching solutions uh, that are almost perforce top-down. You know, a great idea, a great mechanism, great institution, something of that sort. And I think that in fact, it's the everyday life that's actually much more important in shaping even political economy, certainly environmental issues. And so I wanted to be able to highlight how the problems we face have not necessarily a need for a heroic solution. We don't all have to become superwomen and supermen. We don't need to necessarily completely and radically revise our political economy. But in point of fact, we can uh, uh, take from the past some of the solutions that had always already been there in some way. So in Japan, there is the strong artisanal ethos, shokunin katagi. And there's a sense in which, even if you want to answer questions about political economy, why did Japan achieve such rapid economic growth, one part of the answer, I think, has been lost to most economists and most social scientists, and that is the strength of artisanal ethos. And this is the sense in which people are not necessarily geared simply to instrumental rationality. They are not trying to do it the quickest way, the most efficient way but in some ways that uh, allowed them to exercise whatever skills they acquired and achieved over the years. And so, um, you know, to make a simple question into a very long answer, that's the kind of stuff I, I think I wanted to be able to highlight. Confronting the limits to growth, whether we think of those as economic or environmental or demographic or otherwise, is not a uniquely Japanese challenge. And I wonder, does the case of Japan have implications for other places facing down similar crises? In other words, what can the rest of the world learn from these everyday, ordinary practices of sustainability that you look at? Yeah, I think um, one would find that in almost every civilization, probably every civilization or culture, these potential solutions to our present predicaments. I mean, I'm not trying to argue that everything can be found in the past. I mean, but there is a sense in which uh, things like ordinary virtues of thrift, for example, is you know extant in almost every culture we can think of, even American, which is often associated with this mad pursuit of growth. But that's, that's not really true. And so in that sense, by excavating some of that in Japan, I I think people can begin to understand that in their culture, their civilization, and of course in our global age, these ideas and practices can cross national borders and so on, but they can begin to recover some of that. 
that we don't, again, need to have a revolution, as it were, to radically throw away everything we've achieved, but to recover some of the lost practices, lost virtues. Before we conclude, I want to give you a chance to talk about what sort of research you're doing moving forward. I think you have another book on ecology, either forthcoming or <laughs> yes. recent. And um, I wonder, are you sticking with this topic of sustainability moving forward, or have you moved farther afield into new themes? Yes. So I, I did finish another book, which is on the global environmental crisis. And it's really just about why we don't pay much attention why we ignore the problem and that we tend toward inaction. So it's a book about inattention and inaction in the face of a major problem or a major global crisis that we face. So I finished the book and I think that's about all I have to say about the environment. I mean, you know, there's only so much one can say, I think. And I think I've set my two cents worth on the topic. Thank you again for sitting down and talking to me today. Again, the book is Japan, The Sustainable Society, The Artisanal Ethos, Ordinary Virtues, and Everyday Life in the Age of Limits, published in 2021 by University of California Press, and recently the winner of the ICAST Book Prize in the Social Sciences category, English Language Edition. John Lee, congratulations again. Thank you very much. Well, thank you for having me. That was John Lee, Distinguished Professor of Sociology at the University of California, Berkeley. Before that, we heard from Victoria Lee, Assistant Professor of the History of Science and Technology at Ohio University. Thank you for listening to the channel. Please subscribe to receive all future episodes. This podcast is brought to you by the International Institute for Asian Studies, a globally oriented institution based at Leiden University in the Netherlands. We are dedicated to fostering an integrated, multidisciplinary understanding of Asia and beyond, and we would love for you to get involved. For more information on our conferences, webinars, publications, and fellowship program, please visit eas.asia. That's iias.asia. See you next time.